right, if you are three, four, five below kindergarten, I think it is now, and you're not asleep, say that again, kindergarten and pre-K, and you're not asleep, as I see some asleep in grandmother's arms, now is your chance to exit the building to our children's church. I want you to, uh, to think back, uh, today we're going to talk about, I guess, our, our response to Christmas, and they're kind of all over the place, right? There's a lot of a lot of feelings. Some people get mad when people start playing Christmas music and at certain points of the year, and some people are starting in the summer. You know, there's, there's all sorts of uh, response to Christmas. But I want you to think back just as we get started. What, what, think back to your very first memory of a Christmas, right? As far back as you can. And some of you, that is a short ways, and some of you, that's a long ways. But think back. What is your very first memory of Christmas? Who was there? Um, where were you? What, what was it like? Uh, what kind of gifts were there? Uh, th- think about it. Think about who was there, what the experience uh, was like. Um, what about maybe your favorite Christmas memory? Some of it may be that very first one. Some of you, it may have been a recent one. But think about that. You know, we, we have all sorts of different Christmas experiences. But think back to maybe one of your favorite Christmases. Who was there? Um, what, what, was, what kind of gifts were given? What was it like? What was the experience like, I think the, the first one that I can remember was one in Lubbock. Uh, we were at my aunt and Uncle Job's house. And um, I, the only thing, the, the real memory is being in the big room. Uh, all my cousins there from babies to high school, everyone's there. there. Nobody's missing. There's a huge tree. There seems like there's presents everywhere. There may not have been. I don't remember even what I got. Uh, but I just remember everybody there. Big Christmas. And I think my parents' view of that Christmas is actually negative. But my experience as a kid, it was magical, right? It was, it was very magical. Um, now, think about this. How has the experience of Christmas changed over the years, right? Because maybe what your first memory or your favorite memory, it may be different now, right? What Christmas is like. Some of those people are, are no longer there. Some of those people... Um, are there still. Maybe now it's, it's harder. Maybe it's more work. Maybe it's uh, more stress, more money, more gifts. Maybe it's more people. Maybe it's more magical now than it's ever been because you've got grandkids and you've got kids. And again, our, our experiences are all over the map. Christmas is a really sad time for a lot of people. For some people, it's really happy, right? And from a worldly uh, perspective, it, our response to Christmas is kind of all over the place. Um, I think for me, and my wife can attest to this, I'm not an emotional person, and I'm really not sentimental, and, and that's to my shame. Uh, it's, it's really not necessarily, it's really not a great quality of mine. Uh, and so if I'm being honest, the magic of Christmas as a kid uh, doesn't really exist anymore, right? Um, I see all the craziness and the, the, just the hoopla and the gifts and the stress and the money, and I... It gets cynical, probably, towards Christmas. Um, it's kind of made me more of a Scrooge, I guess, than a wide-eyed kid when it comes to Christmas. But as we kind of sit right in the middle of this Christmas season, and we're, we're moving quickly towards Christmas two weeks from tomorrow, um, I want us to think about from Scripture, how do we as Christians respond? Not just what does that morning look like or the Christmas Eve time with your family, whatever it is. How do we respond to this season? How do we respond 
what I'm going to call the unbelievable good news of Christmas this morning. How do we respond to that? Um, what's the point of all this? How do we respond to it? So to do that, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 1, the very beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1. And we're going to look at two examples, uh, actually the very first two examples of somebody being told the good news, the unbelievable good news of Christmas. Uh, we're going to look at Zechariah, maybe not a traditional uh, place to start with a Christmas story, but we're going to talk about him. We'll talk about his life, how he responded to the good news of Christmas. And to be honest, his, his example for us is negative, right? It's not some, we learn from it only because he failed. And then we'll look at Mary um, to see how she responds to the good news of Christmas as well. And what I want us to see today, and I think what the, the text teaches, is that Christmas should, uh, the way we should, should respond to Christmas is with belief, is with joy, and with worship. Belief, joy, and worship. Um, so let me pray before we read, and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for today, and thank you for just a chance uh, with these people right here to sit and think and read and learn, and we, we don't take that lightly. Um, thank you for this season, God, and we thank you for just the yearly reminder of uh, the unbelievable good news of Jesus coming, God. We pray that you would help us sort through all the craziness and the hoopla and the activity. Um, and you would help us to worship you um, this, this time of year, God. We love you. Uh, may um, my words not get in the way of us understanding what it is that you have to say to us this morning, God. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 1, and let's start in verse 5. Luke chapter 1, we'll start in verse 5. We'll read through 20. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at that hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? Or how can this be? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. 
And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. All right, so who is Zechariah? Let's start there. Zechariah, uh, first thing we learn about him is that he's an old man, and he says uh, very kindly about his wife that she is advanced in years, right? He doesn't call her old. He just says she's advanced in years, which is a nice way of saying she's old. And um, Zechariah, uh, this same language is used actually of Abraham and Sarah when, when they're trying to have a kid in the Old Testament. And, and I think one of the, trans, I, I don't remember which translation it is, but it says, as good as dead, right? right? That's how old. This is not just like 40 old. This is not 50 old. This is old, right? I'm almost 30, so 40 still old to me. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Zechariah is uh, an old man, so is his wife, and we know that they live in a small town called Bethany. And uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, one of the major notes of this story is that they don't have kids, right? So they're old. And that's not um, because they hadn't tried. That's not because they didn't want them. Um, it's because they have been unable to. They, they wanted children, no doubt that they had tried because they knew she was barren, right? That, that, is, that is a shameful thing for them, right? That, that is a sad life reality to be old and have desired a kid and not be able to, right? That, that, there's a lot of years of hardship. I don't know if there was miscarriage in there. I don't know if there was what it was, but they had tried and they had been unable to, and they are old now. So Zechariah is also a priest. Zechariah is, uh, by all measures of what we know about him, he is a godly man, right? He's not, he's not lost hope. He, he's following God, even though he's had some hard stuff happen. And so is his wife. It says that she's one of the daughters of Aaron, which meant that she comes from a godly family too. And Zechariah, once a year as a priest from a small town, he would get to go to Jerusalem, and he would get to serve there in the temple, offer sacrifices, do uh, incense, all, all the things that they had to do. Now, this is important, right? Because this is how they, they related to God. The, the Jews could not relate to God without a sacrifice, without a priest, without a temple. And so his, his duty that day was huge, to go in and offer uh, this incense. And so that day, his name gets drawn, not by chance, by God's plan. His name gets drawn. He goes in to offer the incense, He's by himself in the inner rooms, and God shows up. What, and what did God reveal to him that day, right? What did God reveal? He said, you're going to have a son. Now, now we kind of skip over that, but if you've ever struggled with infertility, if you've struggled with wanting to have a kid and not being able to, that news, that first time, I mean, I can remember each time that Maddie has come to me with a pregnancy test, right, and said, we're pregnant. Think about the joy right? Men, women, when you find that out, if you're going to have a kid, think about the joy of that moment. She, the angel, Gabriel, comes to him and says, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son, and it's not just going to be any son. Verse 18, if you look there, verse 18 describes, I'm sorry, verses 15 through 17 describe who this son will be, because he's not just going to be your average Hebrew boy. He's a lot more than that. It says, he will be great before the Lord, 
He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Those are eight descriptors that come straight from the Old Testament. This is not generic, uh, congratulations, you're having a son. He's going to be just like you. Oh, I can't wait to see his personality. That's not what the angel's saying. It's not generic. This is really specific about who this boy is going to be. It's, it's connected directly to the Old Testament. We won't go look at all of those. But Zechariah, being a godly man, being a priest, knowing the scriptures, when he hears those words, you're going to have a son, and this is who he's going to be, he knows immediately who this character is. This is the one who's preparing the way for the Messiah, the Christ. I mean, this is unbelievable good news, right? It's not just good news, it's unbelievable good news. Because he's wanted a kid, all of a sudden he's getting a kid, but he's not just getting any kid, he's getting one who is a central character in redemptive history. And he can't believe it. So how does he respond? How does he respond? I mean, I remember those moments when Maddie has shared with me, we're pregnant, we're going to have a kid, it's joy, right? And he doesn't respond that way. Again, I'm, I'm reading into some of this. I don't know how many times he had been told that. We're going to have a kid, and then it not happened, right? So I'm not, I'm not discounting his life experience and the struggle that he's been through. But that day, we know that he doesn't believe what the angel of the Lord said to him. He doesn't believe it. He is, he is overwhelmed by the circumstances of his life. Not being able to have a kid. He, he can't believe at their age that God would be able to do this. He has, I guess, more belief in his circumstances and, and terrible circumstances at that than he does in what God can do. And so Zechariah doesn't believe. And what, what happens because of that is God mutes him. God shuts his mouth. He is unable to speak until the baby is born. Nine months. Think about those nine months. <laughs> he can't communicate with his wife. He can't share uh, uh, the joy and, and the pleasure of that, that season. He can't express his emotions the way he wants to. He is muted because of his unbelief. And it's almost like God saying, look, you're not going to say another word until I prove that my word is true. You, you're not going to say anything else until I show you that I'm going to be faithful to my promise. And Zechariah missed out on the good news of Christmas because he didn't believe. You see that? He missed out on the unbelievable good news because he was so caught up in his circumstances. Now, I've been, I've been using this phrase, unbelievable good news of Christmas, because we're going to see it multiple times here. And what is that? The un unbelievable good news of Christmas is what? That God himself has come on a rescue mission in the form of Jesus to save us from our sins. It's like, it's like a marine being sent in to rescue someone that's a prisoner of war. They didn't just say, man, I hope, hope you find your way out of that situation. I hope you can work your way out, get out of country, and we'll, we'll pick you up in another country. No, 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 no. Marines don't do that, right? They send somebody in on a rescue mission, even if it means those men die to save the men who are captured, right? And that's the good news of Christmas. All these fun joyful, light-hearted songs is a story about that. It's a story about rescue, that God himself would come. He didn't send one of his minions. No, he came himself, 
in the form of Jesus to rescue us from our sin. We hear that so much. And we can be so overwhelmed with the craziness of the season, the lights, the music, the poinsettias, the gifts, the parties, the, the constant activity in December. We can be so overwhelmed by our circumstances, too. We can be so caught up in how life has not gone the way we wanted to. We can be so caught up with not seeing uh, maybe what we wanted to see in our life happen. And those things can cause unbelief, just like Zechariah. It's unbelievable good news that God would come himself, Emmanuel, to come and save us. It's unbelievable good news. And we can choose whether we believe that or we don't, like Zechariah. But the first way that we should respond to Christmas is first with belief. Belief. Belief that Jesus has come. Belief that he has sent him, God has sent his son on a rescue mission to save us. That's our first response. If you, I, I don't know what the Christ, Christmas experience is like for a non-Christian. Um, I was a Christian at an early age, back as those early memories. So I don't know what that Christmas experience is like. But I know based on what God's word says that you really don't get the, the beauty and the glory of Christmas if you don't have belief. If you're like Zechariah, you miss out on so much just like he missed out on those nine months. Right? You miss out on the, the unbelievable good news of Christmas if you don't believe in Jesus. If you don't believe that this whole thing, all this hoopla and everything is about God announcing the good news of the gospel. That even though we're jacked up and we're sinners and we don't deserve to be with him. He came to rescue us out of that. So the first thing we see, that we have to, to fully experience Christmas, to, to rightly respond to Christmas, we have to have belief. Let's keep going in the story, and let's look at Mary to see how she responds. To see how she responds. Luke chapter 1, if you uh, skip down to verse 26. It says, in the sixth month... So that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed or engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you, Emmanuel. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be, will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. 
And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. Now, we're not Catholic in here, and so we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about Mary, and we definitely don't uh, worship her as some sort of deity. She is a human, and she is uh, a very privileged human, absolutely. But Mary uh, uh, is, is a young girl, right? The scripture uses the word virgin, which can just, can just mean young girl. Uh, it also means that she had never had sex. She had never been with a man. Um, and she is from a no-name kind of place. Uh, you know, it, when it says she is from a city of Galilee named Nazareth, they have to give a bigger place, right? Does anybody go somewhere else and people ask you where you live or where you're from and you say, yeah, I'm from Huntington. And they're like, uh, yeah, it's near Lufkin, East Texas. Okay, it's north of Houston. Or, oh, yeah, 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 I know where Houston's at. Right, she, she is from a no-name, one-red-light sort of town in the middle of Galilee, which was a region of Israel. So she doesn't even really get any notoriety as to where she's from. They're like, she's from Galilee, but it's a little place called Nazareth. <laughs> By all uh, human measures, she's really nothing spectacular. She's young. She's a woman in a male-dominated culture. She's not from anywhere important. She's a Jew. She's under Roman captivity. I mean, this, this girl has... Not a whole lot going for it, if we're being honest. She's nothing spectacular. And somehow, for some reason, the unbelievable good news is this, is that God shows up and speaks to Mary. Right? Not because of anything she had done, not because of anything she had earned, but God shows up and he speaks to her. And what did God reveal to her through Gabriel? He tells her first that she's the favored one of God. The Lord is with you. Right? These, are, these are terms, I, I think, probably just to hey, it's okay, it's okay, I know I'm an angel, but it's okay, just, God, God is for you, God is, this is good, I promise, just hold on. But she knows, based on what Gabriel has to say, that something good is coming, there's some good news coming. And Gabriel tells her that she's been chosen to have a special role in redemptive history, to be the mother of the Messiah, to be the mother of of Jesus the Christ. In verses 31 through 33, it tells us um, some of who this child will be. It says that you will call his name Jesus, which means Savior. That's not a common name. That's not John. That's not Matthew. That's not Mark. Right? This was a unique name given to the one who would actually be something important in their history. It means Savior. You'll call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. And then in verse 35, it says that he will be called holy and the son of God. Another eight descriptors of who this child will be. This is not just uh, you're going to have a child. He, I hope he's like his mom. I hope he's like his dad. I hope he's got this personality. These are not just generic good words. These are really descriptive words of who this child will be. And he will be the one of the Old Testament that has been anticipated since Genesis 3 and Isaiah and the Psalms and all the prophets. The one who would come and be the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. This is unbelievable good news, right? 
just like Zechariah and Elizabeth, they get some unbelievable good news. They're old, they're as good as dead. And they're told, you're going to have a son. It's unbelievable good news. It doesn't make any sense that they should be able to have a kid. Mary's got some unbelievable good news too. It it doesn't make any sense. She shouldn't be able to get pregnant. She's never been with a man. She's a virgin. This is unbelievable good news because not only are you going to have a kid, but he's going to be this massive figure, the central figure in all of salvation history. It's unbelievable good news. And you and I have unbelievable good news too. And just like they're going to have a son, that's unbelievable. Mary's going to have a son, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable that you and I deserve to be called sons and daughters of the king. Right? It's unbelievable that God would send himself and, and sacrifice his own son to save us. It's unbelievable good news. Right? And the response of Christmas and this whole thing is about how do we respond to that unbelievable good news. Zechariah, he doesn't believe. What we see in Mary, though, is that she does believe, right? If we're being honest, uh, let's talk about how Mary responds, okay? Because at first, she asked the same question that Zechariah said, how will this be, right? So she has some questions. <laughs> she has some legitimate questions. Hey, I, you know, I'm not a doctor or anything, Gabriel, but, uh, I, you know, it's really not possible, right? How can this be? She's got some questions. She's got some doubts. But what we see is her, her doubt is different than Zechariah. Zechariah does not believe that God can do the impossible. But by the end of Mary's interaction, she, she says, let it be to me. Right? I, I, I know you can do what you're saying you can do. She believes, like verse 38 says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She believes God's word over her own feelings, her own doubts, her own questions. It's okay to have doubts, right? It's okay to have questions about God and how, why he's working the way he is. It's not okay, and you're not a Christian, if you don't get past those and believe that God can do the impossible, right? Because this whole thing, Christmas, is unbelievable good news, yet we believe it. We believe that God has sent his son to to live on this earth a perfect life, die in our place, even though we didn't deserve to be called sons, even though we had no right to have that relationship. And just like Mary, we have belief. We have belief that God can do the impossible. And until we have that belief, Christmas will just be about gifts and presents and parties and shopping and stress and all these other sorts of things. You'll respond to God with doubt. You'll respond to God with hardness of heart. And Christmas, I think, will make us cynical if we have no belief that this means something so much more. And what we're going to see next is how Mary really responds because we get a piece of her worship, a piece of her, her praise and her poetry, her art to express how she's feeling. And here's what we're going to see. Mary not only responds in belief, to the good news of Christmas. She responds in joy, and she responds in worship. Let's look in verse 46. You'll have to skip a little bit. Verse 46. And I don't know if this is a... I don't know if Mary wrote this down. I don't know if the early church sang this, but this is definitely poetry. This is definitely a song of worship. I don't know how this came to be in our scriptures, but it's there, and Mary wrote it. And here is how she feels 
Here is how she expresses her worship and her joy. In verse 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. See, really what we see, and, and poetry is so hard to teach and to explain, and I'm not good at it, to be honest, but what we see in this song, what we see here is joy first, right? You hear the joy in her voice, just overwhelmed with the fact that God would look at her. She's a nobody from a no-name place. She's a, she's a woman in a male-dominated culture. She's young. She's not old. And she is overwhelmed at the thought that God would give her this privilege. She's, she has so much joy. Um, let's look at it in verse 46. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 46. It says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Uh, when I first read that, I'm thinking, man, you sure are proud to be so humble, right? If you write a song about how humble you are, that's actually not very humble. I think the word probably means something more like pitiful. For God has looked upon the pitiful estate, the lowly estate. What does someone else's say instead of humble? In your version, what does it say? Lowly. For God has looked upon the lowly estate of his servant. She is shocked. She is absolutely shocked at this good news that God would turn his attention to me. That God would reveal himself to me. She is filled with joy because of that. Not only that, he calls her favored. She can't believe it, but she does. And this joy has taken over her heart because of that good news. Here's what happens. That joy so fills her heart and it overflows into worship. It so filled her heart, it overflows into worship. This is how worship works, right? If I take a cup I don't have one. If I take this water bottle right here and I start to pour water into it and I keep pouring water into it and I fill it all the way up and then I keep pouring water, what overflows out of the water bottle? Water, right? This is answer, question and answer time. If I take this and I fill it with Dr. Pepper and I keep filling it with Dr. Pepper, eventually what overflows out of it, Courtney? Dr. Pepper, right? If I take a coffee mug and I pour it with coffee and I keep pouring coffee and I get distracted talking and I keep pouring coffee, what overflows out of the mug? Coffee. Not Dr. Pepper, not water, right? This is how worship works, right? Our hearts are like that cup, like that mug. And whatever it's being filled with, whatever our minds and hearts are being filled with, eventually that overflows with whatever it's being filled with, right? 
Uh, this is how worship works. It overflows, and we offer praise. We offer, this is how it works with bands. Think about this. Some people are real passionate. Mike Werner, who's your favorite band? No, you don't have a favorite band? Okay, White Stripes. It's a little older than me, but I'm going to go with it, all right? <laughs> you listen to White Stripes. You probably have a CD of White Stripes, right? Just go with me. Just say yes to everything I say right now, okay? <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't work this out beforehand, I promise. You listen to them. Maybe you've been to a concert, right? And you go to this concert and you watch this performance, and your mind and your heart gets filled with White Stripes music, with White Stripes guitar riffs, with stats about how many records they've sold, and what happens when you leave that concert. Man, you should have seen them. Dude, do you know how great this band is? What is that? That's worship, right? You're proclaiming the greatness of White Stripes. This happens with football teams, J. Mike, right? <laughs> this happens with football teams. You know what I'm saying? You, you know the stats, right? You know, you know their schedule, right? Dallas, Dave, J. Mike's a good Dallas Cowboys fan, I'm sure as many of you are. And what happens is you watch their games, and some weeks, Monday morning is excellent, right? Because you're so excited about how many yards Dak Prescott threw for, that great catch that Dez caught in the end zone. I mean, you know, you know their chances of getting in the playoffs versus not. And if they won that night, there's a lot of smack talking going on, right? What is that? It's worship, right? It's proclaiming the greatness of what's been filling your mind and your heart and your eyes. That's how it works with those things. And it's really no different with this right here, with Jesus, with God. What we fill our minds with, what fills our heart, is eventually going to overflow in worship, right? Worship is just telling each other, telling the world about the greatness of whatever has filled our hearts, whatever has captured our attention. And Mary responds in worship right here because she is blown away at the fact that God would look at me She's got her mind and her heart filled with truth. And her worship is not really about her feelings. Let's look at that. I kind of emphasized it when I read it. But she is solely focused on who God is in her worship. She's focused on this is who God is and this is what he's done. We could, I'm not going to read it all, but it says, For he who is mighty, holy is his name, his mercy. He has shown strength. He is scattered. He is brought down. He is filled. He has helped. He spoke, right? Her worship is not just about, man, I feel this way. Her worship is solely focused on the truth of who God is and what he has done for her. We are all worshipers in here. We all, we all have a cup for a heart. And whatever it's being filled with eventually will spill out into worship. This Christmas season uh, is a dangerous temptation to fill our hearts with all sorts of things that were never meant to be worshipped. It's a dangerous situation where our minds and our hearts are so captured by presence and family and trips and experiences and money and stress, and it can so fill our hearts, so fill our minds, that what we end up worshipping in, in the December month is not God, 
It's not the good news that God has come on a rescue mission to save us, but what we end up worshiping is all sorts of other things. And it's not just the month of December that's a temptation for that. Every month is. But Mary, when she hears this unbelievably good news that God has sent, is going to send his son to save them, she responds in worship to God. Right. See, our response to Christmas, and I'm preaching to myself right here, okay? Because I've got a son now, and the, the funness of Christmas is coming back. The funness, that's not a word. The uh, excitement, the magic, right? And it's, it's really tempting to find satisfaction and all those sorts of things. And so I'm preaching to myself, too. Three things we should respond to Christmas. First, belief. Belief. Belief that God can overcome any impossible circumstance in your life. Like we said earlier, Christmas can be a really hard season for some people. It's the first Christmas without a loved one. It's, it's a hard time because of this, because of money, because of whatever. We can respond like Zachariah this Christmas and doubt that God is at work in our life. We can doubt that God's even present, that he's active. Or we can respond like Mary. We can respond in belief that God can do the impossible. God can overcome that person's unbelief. God can, God can work in their heart, right? We can believe the impossible. That's one of my challenges to you. Fight against the temptation to doubt that God can do the impossible. But I think we also have to believe that God is greater than any material satisfaction. This, this season is particularly uh, dangerous for that, right? We get so caught up with, man, I got that. If I just had that iPhone X, whoo, then I'd be set. But you know what will happen after the iPhone X, iPhone Y, iPhone Z, iPhone 74 one day when I'm 74? If, if, if Christmas presents could satisfy them, we wouldn't give Christmas presents next year. <laughs> if last year's Christmas presents could satisfy us, we wouldn't give Christmas presents this year. We'd be done because we'd be satisfied. Don't... Don't give in to the temptation that some gift, some experience will satisfy you. The only thing that will really satisfy you is God. So we respond in belief, we respond in joy. And joy is not just this uh, light-hearted happiness that no matter what happens, ah, I'm happy, rainbows, you know. Joy comes from when we fill our hearts and minds with truth. When we're overcome with God, not ourselves when we, we are filled with the truth of who God is and what he has done, don't let your, your heart and your, your mind be filled with so many other things this season, right? Fill them with the truth of God. And what will happen is you'll respond in worship, number three. Belief, joy, and worship. Remember, worship only comes when we fill our minds with who God is. Worship is, to be honest, worship is really not what happens in this room all that much. I said it on Wednesday night to our youth, right? So, so many times when we get together, we, we care about what other people, I care about what you think. That's why I have a jacket and my shirt is tucked in this morning. And some of you noticed when I walked in the room, you said, are you preaching today? I said, you caught me, right? <laughs> right? Because my shirt's tucked in. I, got, I don't have sandals on, uh, Tom. And yes, I'm sorry I'm wearing this, but so many times what happens in this room is about performance, is about each other. 
It's about how, how awesome Rob hit that guitar solo or, or how great the sermon was. I mean, I'm the most judged person in this room. We were talking about preaching this morning in class. I'm like, oh, I feel nervous. Like, I know y'all are all watching me. And so many times what happens in this room is not worship because we're just consumed with each other. We're filling our hearts with performance and, and, and how people are dressed and the song selection or whatever. And, and that's not true worship. Worship's when our heart is filled with the truth of who God is. We can get so distracted in this room. We can get so distracted anywhere else. And my challenge to us, I don't know how we fight against that in here, but personally, make time this season to fill your mind with the truth of who God is. The unbelievable good news that God has come and he's here, he's God with us. That's the challenge, and, and it is a challenge. It's not easy. There's a lot of shiny lights and a lot of bright, uh, fancy toys that are coming. And don't get caught up in that. This season is a time for us as Christians to respond in worship more than anything else. Worship of God for what he has done and how he has come to save us. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for today. And um, God, I pray that this room would be a place of worship. I pray that our hearts would be places of worship of you, not of so many other things that vie for our attention and vie for our, our money and our all sorts of things. God, we help us. We are so tempted to stray, especially in this season. And I pray that this year, um, this church and these people would not respond to Christmas um, with anything less than belief and joy and worship, God. God, thank you for all you've done. Thank you for the fact that you were willing to send your son on a, on a deadly rescue mission, God, that would ultimately lead to our salvation, God, but would cause the loss of your son. Thank you for that. We don't deserve that. Thank you that you came to save us. Thank you for that good news. May we remember that this season. May we celebrate that this season. And may we be people that live differently in this world because of what you have done for us and how you have saved us, God. We love you. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. If you would, please stand with us. Uh, if you need to come talk to myself or Brother Daryl, if you need to pray at the altar, this time is open. Um,
needed your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise we pour out our praise it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise to only it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise, we pour out our praise, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. 